Faye, in this era of rapidly changing practice with respect to COVID, I am so happy that I have a continued subscription to the OBG project. Definitely. I have really appreciated my OBG First subscription as well because I get a lot of my information actually from my phone. And so when they email me and I'm able to rapidly click on those articles and read them before they go away, that really allows me to continue to stay up to date on everything that's going on. And it's even beyond just COVID, right? They send us summaries of the latest and greatest and randomized trials for obstetrics, gynecology, and primary care, as well as other interesting articles that, hey, that just may be relevant to my practice or just something fun to know. So if you're a fourth-year resident like Nick and I, you can get one year of subscription to OBG First absolutely free. And we have actually gone beyond our first year, and I have continued to subscribe to uh, the OBG Project and OBG First just because I think that it is so helpful for my current practice and for my learning. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we'll be talking about malpresentation and malposition. And just so that everybody knows, we are in the middle of moving from Providence, Rhode Island to our new respective location. So this podcast is getting recorded on uh, my apartment floor. Yeah, Um, we are ourselves malpositioned and malpresenting while laying across <laughs> the apartment floor here. So apologies for any issues with the sound. It's going to be great. <laughs> All right, Nick. So what are our learning objectives for today? So first, we're going to describe the different types of malpresentation other than breach presentations and malpositions as well. Um, and secondly, we'll talk about the management of these different types of malpresentations and malpositions. Um, in terms of reading for today, if you want to follow along, we'll have a link on our website to a Green Journal article by Dr. William Barth from March of 2015. So, Faye, I think this is really easy to get confused in your head. What exactly is malpresentation versus malposition? Yeah, so let's first start off with some definitions, Nick. I had to go back and look at all of these again, too, because I sometimes get confused by all the different terms that we use. Let's start with fetal lie. So fetal lie is the relationship between the long axis of the fetus, so meaning um, from the head all the way to the feet, and the mother. So this could be longitudinal, so that's you know up and down, which could be like a breech or a vertex. The baby can be transverse, or the baby can be oblique. Malpresentation is when the fetal vertex is not the part of the fetus that is closest to the pelvic inlet. So that could be breech, that could be transverse, oblique, etc. And malposition is when the fetus is in vertex presentation, but the position of the fetal head is not optimal for delivery. Uh, Or if the fetal head is rotated so that it is not oriented away in the maternal pelvis. All right, so what are the different types of malpresentation and malpositions, Nick? And, And how often do they actually occur? So again, we talked about different lies. So let's break it down first by malpresentation. So breach is certainly the most common form of malpresentation. Um, This is probably something that you've encountered frequently for primary sections for breach or what have you. And this occurs in maybe three to four per hundred term pregnancies. The rest of them presumptively because these other malpresentations are much harder to detect antenatally, um, happen at delivery. So the rather than per-term pregnancy, these incidences are now per-delivery. 
face presentation happens in about one to 600 or one to 800 deliveries. A brow presentation means, um, again, like the top of the forehead is the presenting part. And that's in about one to 500 to one in 4,000 deliveries. A compound presentation, meaning a cephalic presentation that comes alongside a hand or a small part is about one in 1,500 deliveries. And finally, for the malpresentations, a shoulder presentation, meaning the shoulder is the presenting part, is about 1 in 200 deliveries. For malpositions, on the other hand, so again, this is a cephalic presentation, but say coming down as occiput transverse or occiput posterior. Occiput posterior presentations are more common and happen about 5% of births at delivery. Um, most OP babies, though, will spontaneously rotate to an anterior position during labor, which is fortunate. Um, it's just a lot easier for babies to come down that way. Prior to labor, 15 to 20 percent of term fetuses in cephalic presentation are presenting OP. Um, so even if you detect it antenatally, not necessarily anything to do about it then. Faye, what exactly should we do about the detected malpresentation or malposition, though? So before we talk about that, Nick, let's talk a little bit about a normal vaginal delivery. So in your perfect world, basically a baby in occiput anterior position, right? In this position, the neck flexes to bring the chin to the chest, which ultimately results in a smaller diameter of the fetal head on average about nine and a half centimeters um, that needs to traverse the obstetric conjugate, which is on average, about 10.5 centimeters. And the reason we care about that is because the obstetric conjugate is the shortest anterior-posterior pelvic diameter that the fetus needs to cross in order to be delivered. In other positions, like face or brow, the neck is extended, and there is a larger fetal cephalic head diameter that needs to traverse this area, which makes it much more difficult um, in terms of achieving a vaginal delivery. With that in mind, we can go ahead and talk a little bit about some of these uh, mal presentations. So I decided to lump breech and shoulder together, mostly because we had an episode already in episode 53 where we talked about breech vaginal deliveries. But basically, in, in a sense, when you have a breech or shoulder presentation, the current recommendation is to have a C-section. We can break that down a little bit for shoulder where, you know, just like how in breech presentations, we break it down to like sacrum anterior, sacrum posterior, things like that. The same can be done for the shoulder, but it's based on the location of the scapula. So LSA in this case means left scapula anterior, RSA would mean right scapula anterior, and similarly LSP and RSP. Just like with breech, when a baby has a shoulder presentation, um, Usually they would be in transverse lie, but just like in breach, we can offer an external cephalic version prior to labor. However, once labor occurs, usually versions become very difficult to do simply because you're trying to push against this contracting uterus. And the reason that once a woman is in labor that a shoulder can't deliver is that the shoulder becomes wedged into the pelvis and therefore the head will lie in one of the iliac fossa and the breech in the other. And the baby essentially just becomes wedged into the pelvic inlet and can't get past because of this large diameter. All right, so that's easy enough. If you have a baby and they're coming in, mom is in labor and the baby is breech or, you know, shoulder presentation, you go ahead and do a C-section. What about some face presentations or brow presentations, Nick? What do we do about those? Yeah, so a, a face presentation is when the face from forehead to chin somewhere is the leading part that's presenting. 
This is usually diagnosed by vaginal exam intrapartum. So again, you're going to palpate something like the orbital ridge or the nose or the mouth or the chin, something that is obviously not going to be able to have you palpate the fontanelles and diagnose like a OP or OT type of head. At diagnosis, about 60% of these are mentum anterior and 26% are mentum posterior, meaning either the chin is up or the chin is down. 15% are mentum transverse, and that can be either to the left or to the right side. The management of these differs depending on what exactly is presenting, and again, we're just gonna go over the more common face presentations here. So mentum anterior, again, the fetal chin, if you think about the baby having to move through, is gonna need to pass underneath the symphysis pubis, and the fetal neck may need to extend even more where it's already extended. So again, that chin is tilted towards the sky, and you can imagine that baby's head is going to have to extend even further back as I lean away from the microphone and try and act it out myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> After the chin clears the symphysis, it's possible for vaginal delivery to occur, um, and women can be allowed to push normally during the second stage. Forceps can be used on mentum anterior presentations, but engagement is not considered to have occurred until the face is at plus two station and the chin, rather than the occiput, becomes the focal point for orientation. Don't use a vacuum um, on a mentum anterior presentation because where are you going to put it other than directly over the face? And that probably won't make for some beautiful baby pictures. Um, <laughs> Mentum posterior presentations, on the other hand, is where the, again, chin is towards the floor. And in this case, the fetal neck is already maximally extended. You can't get any more extension for the baby to kind of bring the eyes up towards the sky with that chin pointed downwards like that. Um, so you're not going to be able to get the forehead basically underneath the symphysis pubis. Mentum posterior presentations will not deliver vaginally unless there is spontaneous rotation to mentum anterior. If mentum posterior presentations are identified early in labor, you can expectantly manage them in the hope that the mentum will spontaneously rotate ultimately to an anterior presentation. However, if the presentation is persistently mentum posterior, um, the recommendation is for cesarean delivery. One good question that might come up is, well, if we're going to expectantly manage this to rotate, why not try a manual rotation? Um, unfortunately, there really are not a lot of cases of manual rotation of a mentum posterior presentation. And those that exist, there are some that show both successful internal and external manipulation. Um, but there's also case reports of uterine rupture, cord prolapse, and cervical spine trauma to the infant. So really, if cesarean is available, the evidence or the lack thereof at this point probably favors cesarean section. Faye, moving on from face presentations, let's talk now about brow. Yeah, so brow presentation is when the presenting part of the fetus is the anterior fontanelle to the brow, um, basically the orbital ridge, and it does not include the mouth and chin. The way that this is diagnosed, again, is usually made with a vaginal exam, so you 
when you do your vaginal exam, you can feel the forehead, you can feel the orbits or the eyes and the nose, but you can also diagnose this with ultrasound because you're able to see which way the baby is turned. In terms of management, these women can undergo a trial of labor because a brow presentation is usually transitional. So in one study, when brow presentation was diagnosed early in the labor course, 67 to 75% of the fetuses spontaneously converted to a more favorable presentation and delivered vaginally. And then if diagnosed later in in labor, 50% spontaneously converted and delivered vaginally. Otherwise, in 30%, the neck extended further, and in 20%, the neck flexed, resulted, resulting in an occipit posterior presentation. Usually when brow presentation occurs, version, vacuum, and forceps are not recommended. And if there is protracted labor with a persistent brow presentation, cesarean section may be indicated at that point. All right, Nick, so these are kind of all the mal presentations and mal positions that are a little bit more uncommon. Let's talk about something that I feel like we see every day on the labor floor, which is OP position or persistent occiput posterior. Yeah, this is really the bane of our existence, I think. You know, it's where you certainly you see the abnormal course of the second stage and you wonder and you like are concerned because you can't feel the sutures and the fontanelles anymore because there's molding going on and you know you probably pop an ultrasound on at that point and boom you see those orbits staring straight up at you mm -hmm. it's really a challenge um but op presentations in the first stage of labor can be managed expectantly and in the second stage they also can be managed expectantly as long as the fetal heart rate tracing is reassuring and labor is progressing normally and in many cases, OP presentation does resolve on its own. Somewhere between 50 to 80% of OP babies at the beginning of the second stage will rotate spontaneously to occiput anterior. If the pelvis is adequate and there's a prolonged second stage, you can attempt manual rotation to an occiput anterior presentation. And there's a good success rate with this, almost 90% in some series. And an occiput anterior presentation, just because of the dynamics of the pelvis, is going to increase the likelihood of vaginal delivery. So the recommendation really is for early manual rotation in the second stage. And prospective studies that have looked at manual rotation versus expectant management of OP heavily favor manual rotation. One such prospective study demonstrated demonstrated 93% occiput anterior position at delivery in the manual rotation group versus 15% of those verting to occiput anterior in the expectant management group. Faye, talk to me a little bit more about manual rotation techniques. Yeah, so I personally have really only been successful with one of these, but there are two techniques that um, Dr. Barth has talked about in his in his paper. So the first is a digital uh, manual rotation technique where you actually place the tips of your index and middle fingers in the anterior segment of the lamboid suture near the posterior fontanelles. And then you use this to flex and slightly dislodge the head. And then with your hand and forearm going in the same position, you then rotate the baby to OA position. Now, obviously you would use um, the the right hand for LOP and the left hand for ROP, and you would be sitting on different sides of the bed depending on where the head is. And as you can imagine, this would require understanding and knowledge of definitively where the fetal head is so that you're able to rotate the head to the position that you want, because what you don't want to do is rotate an OA baby to OP. 
so this has really never worked for me. And I think it's because I have small hands and um, I just am not able to get enough force with just two fingers. So if you're someone who has smaller hands like me, um, the, the, the technique that has really worked for me is the um, entire hand manual rotation technique, where you actually place your whole hand into the patient's vagina, and then you place four fingers behind the posterior parietal bone with the palm up, and then the thumb over the anterior parietal bone. Again, right hand for LOP, left hand for ROP. And then you use your whole hand to flex and slightly dislodge the head and then rotate the baby. Now, prior to manual rotation techniques, usually I really would only attempt this on patients that have adequate anesthesia because as you can imagine, this can be very uncomfortable mm-hmm. if you're flexing and destationing the head and pushing this baby up into the women's pelvis. Um, and also just allowing us to even attempt this maneuver, I think most women would need some type of epidural. The other thing that I tell a lot of patients is that it's very unlikely, but some of the risks include things like having um, some kind of cord pro Prolapse, because when you're destationing that head, of course, whatever else is up there could also come out, whether that's a hand, whether that's a cord, um, and that could result in a need for an emergency C-section. And then last of all, I tell them that sometimes the babies just don't want to turn. And so as hard as you can try, sometimes babies just don't want to be turned. And so even though we're trying as hard as we can, sometimes that baby just wants to stay in that OP position. Um, And so those are things that I tell patients about. And like I said, I really only think that one of these techniques worked for me, certainly I think just because of the mechanics of everything. But I think depending on um, what you've tried in the the past, um, both techniques are valuable for you to be able to uh, manually rotate your patient's baby. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of uh, our malpresentation and malposition episode. So let's go ahead and sum up. All right. So we first started to talk about the difference between malpresentation and malposition. Again, we defined vocabulary as lie, which is the relationship of the long axis of the fetus with the mother. So this is your transverse oblique breach type of description. The definition of malpresentation is that the fetal vertex is not the part of the fetus that's closest to the pelvic inlet. And malposition is that the fetus is in vertex presentation, but the position of the head is not optimal for delivery um, or not rotated to a position that's occiput anterior. We then talked about the different types of malpresentation and malposition, and so those include things like the breech presentation, face, brow, compound, and shoulder presentations, as well as OT or OP for malpositioning. We then talked about, you know, what do we do about these things and talked about what a standard normal OA vaginal delivery would look like and why it is more, sometimes more difficult um, for vaginal deliveries when the babies are not positioned in OA. In brief, for the breech and shoulder presentations, Um, Though we've talked about breech vaginal delivery before, again, you can classify shoulder presentations based on the position of the scapula, left scapula anterior, for instance. But for these types of presentations, these are not optimal for vaginal delivery, and so the recommendation is for cesarean section. In terms of her face presentation, you can assess to see whether or not the fetus is in mentum anterior or mentum posterior positioning. Mentum anterior does allow for vaginal delivery because uh, the fetal neck, while extended, is still able to extend a little bit more to allow that chin to pass under the pubic symphysis, and forceps can be used on uh, mentum anterior fetuses. In mentum posterior, however, the fetal neck is maximally extended, and therefore it does not allow the 
occiput and the forehead to pass under the pubic symphysis. And so therefore, if a patient is in persistent mentum posterior positioning, that would be a reason for a cesarean section. Brow presentations are when the brow or the orbital ridge is the presenting part, not including the mouth and the chin. Again, these are also often diagnosed intrapartum, um, and they often resolve on their own as labor progresses. So these can be managed expectantly um, and delivered through, though if they are presenting at the time of delivery, version vacuum and forceps are not recommended. We then talked about persistent occiput posterior, which is when the fetus remains in occiput posterior position in second stage of labor without spontaneous uh, rotation to OA. Um, if we feel that the pelvis is adequate and there's a prolonged second stage, um, the recommendation is to attempt a manual rotation. And this is because once manual rotation is done, there's a high likelihood of success of vaginal delivery. We then talked about two manual rotation techniques, both digital and with a hand. All right. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. Hey guys, first of all, Nick and I just want to say thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Um, this podcast, Creogs Over Coffee, has definitely gone beyond anything that we could have possibly imagined it to be when we started it uh, in September of 2018. Yeah, to date, you guys have given us a listen over 600,000 times. We have over 100 episodes, including the special content that we've released. Um, it's really been a wild, wild ride. As you know, Nick and I are graduating residency this year, and in fact, as we're recording this, we're sitting in my very empty apartment on the ground <laughs> in order to get this done. Um, and we will be moving to different cities. I'll be in Philadelphia, and Nick will be in Seattle. Now, this isn't a goodbye. It's just a modification of the plan. Um, so going forward, you guys are going to hear us just a little bit less frequently. Faye and I will be putting out episodes every other Sunday, so keep listening, keep looking for us. We're going to keep bringing you great content at Creogs Over Coffee. And who knows, if we find that we're able to make content much more frequently, we may go back to our weekly schedule. If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or send some love to the show. Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. Send us some love, we'll send you some swag. For this show and every other show, we have adjunct learning material on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, correction to this, or any of our previous episodes, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 